Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. And I'm your co-host, Beth Bradley. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Bob Bajan, Corporate Vice President of Global Events, Production Studios, and Marketing Community at Microsoft. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Bob. We are so excited to have you today. Great to be here. Yeah. So to kick things off, uh, we would love to hear a little bit about your role at Microsoft and what brings you joy in that role. Okay. Well, so the, my role at Microsoft is probably, in my opinion, one of the coolest jobs in the world in the sense that um, we're basically uh, a team of people here inside the company that are managing and creating all of the experiential marketing that's taking place uh, at Microsoft globally. So any of our flagship events like Microsoft Build or Microsoft Ignite, uh, our C-series events for business decision makers, any of our product announcements or press announcements all over the world, the tours we do, our participation in third-party events for mm-hmm. industry, you know, like World uh, WPC or CES or NRF, um, as well as Uh, producing about 1,200 hours of television programming a month through our studios building. Um, And that's, you know, everything from Brad Smith and Satya Nadella, our CEO and president, broadcasting into news programming, you know, like CNN or or giving testimony, you know, in Washington or that kind of thing, (laughs) all the way through to, you know, a developer's network that runs literally 24 hours a day. Uh, as a television uh, kind of network for developers and and helping developers grow and learn. So it's a pretty diversified portfolio. It's an incredible group of, you know, kind of creative makers living inside this engineering organization. And, you know, and that's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, It just, it's remarkable. And from one theater major to another, uh, it's incredible for as an inspiration for all those parents that are like, really, you're going to get into theater. <laughs> I totally um, agree with you. You know, it's so funny. My 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 parents were so worried about spent so much time wringing their hands about with, with me being a theater major. And it's like now completely the opposite expectation has happened. So that's good. Do you mind going through with just a brief uh, trajectory of your pathway from theater major to now? corporate uh, VP of one of the most iconic iconic brands in existence? Yeah, it's a pretty eclectic kind of circuitous route. I I was very lucky. Right out of college, I got got into Actors' Equity, uh, you know, the performing union in the United States and and kind of worked. That's predominantly the theater union, right? That's correct. That's correct. And and, and I was a musical theater performer, dancer, singer, actor, you know, chorus kid. Um, and I was very lucky. I, I got a job two days after college and then uh, worked kind of for the next five or six years of my career um, at, as a working theater performer. Um, and then I, you know, you, you kind of creatively, if you're a maker, you kind of get feeling cramped if all you're doing is working in the chorus. And so I wrote a musical that got produced in New York. Um, that uh, kind of turned me into a, and my writing partner into a jingle writing creative direction team for advertising back in the days when you could still write jingles, uh, you know, in the 80s. Um, and that that really gave us an apprenticeship in songwriting. I mean, we wrote probably 150 songs in our catalog in a relatively short time uh, through the 80s. And then 
at the end of the 80s and 89, we were lucky enough to hook up with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they were just coming out of the sewer. We hadn't gotten really be, become film stars yet. Um, and then uh, worked with them to, be, to turn them into a rock and roll band. And we wrote and produced all their albums and a live touring show of the Turtles. That kind of took place in 89, 90, 91 at the height of uh, the first big spike in the Turtles popularity. Um, and, but there, that was a yeah, very I was riding show. it. Oh, I was yeah, riding that spike. I was like oh, 10 yeah. years old. Yeah. No, it's so funny now because there's so many times that I'm like in a job, you know, interviews here at Microsoft and, and you know, in early in career, people are interviewing and, and they go, oh, my God, you were in the turtle. It's like everybody's into it. Um, but it was very technical. Uh, there was no, at that time, uh, software to control uh, the audio animatronics of the heads that the actors would wear with the track of the show and the songs and that kind of thing. And so it was my first experience in writing software. Or you know, working with a team, writing software and creating programs, and it led to uh, a, just a bunch of you know interesting projects uh, coming out of that turtles that culminated with this idea of an interactive motion picture approach for movie theaters. Think about choose your own adventure movies uh, uh, for 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 movie theaters, um, and that before the internet, ninety two, ninety three, right? Uh, and it, it it took off, and we made our first one on a shoestring budget, and it got a lot of press. We opened at Lowe's Nineteenth Street theater in New York. And um, we made the front page of the New York Times. We were on the Today Show and this thing. And Sony Pictures gave us a five-picture deal, set us up up in a bungalow in Hollywood and um, on the lot there. And, and so we made five interactive motion pictures and uh, built 100 uh, theaters around the country. But the truth is, it was kind of ahead of its time. We learned a ton about interactive storytelling. But um, you know, a little bit like audience wasn't ready. You know, the internet hadn't broken yet. There wasn't this sense of anybody in the audience like wanting to participate in their media. You know, that's just it's a relatively new idea, you know, kind of post-internet. Um, but it got enough attention that when the internet did start to take off, I I went to Warner Brothers to start Warner Brothers Interactive and was the founding executive producer at Warner Brothers and the development executive for Creative. And then I got recruited to come to Microsoft for the first time in 1995 after Bill Gates wrote his famous internet memo going, oh my God, we shipped an AOL competitor, but what we really needed to do is build a website. And I came to Microsoft uh, in uh, 19, the very beginning of 1996 to transfer and make the next version of MSN. Oh, wow. um, and then and then started the ad business there and then went back to my entrepreneurial life and started an agency and da 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 and then came back to Microsoft uh, seven years ago. Wow. Uh, yes. Thank you for sharing. It's so and I think the episode's huge. over. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. No, that was remarkably concise. You can tell you're a talented and gifted storyteller. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit about Microsoft and, and your specific role there. Uh, because it's such a huge global brand. And I, I, I'm sure with every marketing move, it has the ability to sort of shift, uh, you know, and impact everyone. Um, can you talk about Microsoft's goals and purpose and and the way that you filter those go goals and purpose through your role? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And again, it's it, in many ways, it's the power of theater and storytelling, you know, in so many ways that that really differentiate. But the vehicle of experiential marketing, right? And much of the stuff to do with the studio, even if it's on video or film, ends up being a part of these in-person and digital shows that we make. 
in in almost every way, these experiential marketing experiences are the tip of the spear of our mission, of what we stand for, of the demonstration of our culture, of our posture in the world, right? Because it is where the rubber meets the road of our customers and partners kind of really seeing who we are. And without trying to sound too dramatic about it, right? It's not just about what we say we are, but in a very real way, when you're doing an event or you're hosting people, it's like, oh, are you who you say you are, mm. right? Because we really have to deliver that experience. And so in that sense, I, I think, you know, we are kind of the emotional skin of the company because of that. And, and it's exciting and it's scary as heck, right? Because, you know, yeah. the mistakes we make have, you know, r rippling effects mm -hmm. that are much bigger, you know, exponentially larger than the mistakes themselves because they're kind of in the spotlight and in the public eye. You know, our our digital shows go down and as as such is taking the stage, it's bad. You know, there's yeah. 200,000 people online with us kind of in these shows now. And so I think that part of it, especially in the last you know, six or seven years as Satya has gotten comfortable and his CEO ship has had so much influence on the culture. I, I think this team has gotten more and more aware of, of the impact we, we are capable of having both, both positively and negatively. Right. And, and, and the kind of strategic role that we've been able to play. And then the thing I'd add in terms of your question about impact, the pandemic and, and the shift to digital. And then because of that, our ability to explicitly measure in a way we had never done before in the in-person world has quantified the value of events and experiential marketing in a way that has kind of helped it ascend to a much more strategic role than it ever did before. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be everybody goes, oh, yeah, you got to have that because the salespeople have to network, right? And right, I'm right. oversimplifying to make the point, but basically- And it's got to have the room. coolest light show. <laughs> Right, you know, or you know, or or a great open bar, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where the networking happens and all that, and all true. But but I think now we see in this very measurable way that these events you bring a customer to an event, they're the likelihood of them closing a piece of business or starting a new opportunity exploration with you is is significantly higher in the next 90 days than if they don't go. And another thing is you know, the other big thing we measure is brand love, and it's like, hey. If you bring a customer that's neutral or somewhat negative to an event, the the ability to accelerate their kind of motion into love is so much faster than anything else we can do in the marketing space. It's just really interesting because as, a, as an event maker for a long time, it's definitely always been the bottom rung, you know, on the kind of the advertising, or, you know, or marketing portfolio. Yeah, it's always yeah. been the afterthought. And, and now you can see it just clicking, clicking, clicking up, both at Microsoft and I think in the industry in general. Yeah, I love what you said about uh, it being the skin of the brand because it made me go like, oh, everyone, there's that old like, I don't know, uh, saying the skin is the most important organ in the body. You know, like, yeah. but it's just, it's pure, it takes all the, you know, takes everything takes all the battering from like right <laughs> exactly from all the external forces like you it all is worn on your skin yep. um so i really appreciate that that metaphor yeah that that's super interesting and just kind of thinking about like bringing those brand values to life i'm just curious kind of about how your team and how you think about being storytellers and kind of upholding those and and bringing them into experiences well you know i think 
one thing is, is that it, it, that starts from the top. Like you have to really mm-hmm. recognize that. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that my, my manager, Chris Capicello, the chief marketing officer of the company is a master storyteller and really has an enormous respect for the cultivation of that craft. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's super helpful. And quite frankly, so Satya, you know, our CEO, I mean, he, he's, I would, I'd, I'd elevate it to, he's kind of, poetic but but he's also he understands structure of story and the need to simplify right which is something that is a true behavioral change at microsoft yes. and i think you know it's it's taken a long time and cost millions of lives but i think we've <laughs> you know we've we're really getting there and I, so anyway from the top down but i think in this team what's great is is first of all like i go back to the quality of people that we've been able to assemble on the team fantastic I think we've been able to enjoy a certain amount of, you know, warming of the spotlight on this group, especially through the pandemic, because of mm-hmm. some of the stuff we did and, the, and what we've been able to achieve. And that's allowed us to maybe even raise the bar of our hiring over the last two or three years because because of that kind of recognition, you know, a lot more people interested in maybe coming and joining the team. And, and I think that naturally allows us to get a higher quality of, of, of creative maker. Um, and so I think all those things we've been lucky enough to kind of have worked together to create a group of people that I think have really started to not only, I mean, they, you know, you ship over and over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. the nature of events never ends, but to start to build some, you know, processes and, and ways to create and work in this big matrix organization, which is, you know, like, no small feat, um, but to really start to develop some kind of tried and true practices that you can apply over and over again. Th- that's, that's been really the key in the last mm-hmm. few years. And we're not, and we're still not there, you know, yeah. now, especially as we kind of come back into this, you know, the incredible appetite to be back in person and at the same time, not wanting to lose the incredible reach that we were able to achieve oh, on the yeah. digital side. But kind of all of us in the industry doing it with a lot less money. You know, it's like doing like, yeah, output, yeah. I, I say this at Microsoft all the time. We're doing f- probably 40% more this year in terms of output than we did in 2019 for about 60% less budget. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of, it makes me think a little bit kind of just about like that community piece of like fostering community, like how you, how you do that now, like internally, externally. And um just kind of in your experience, do you feel like what is happening internally is reflected outward? And uh, how 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 much does the customer experience uh, mirror the brand perception of the employees too? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, that's like, that's about eight questions in one. But, yeah, that's true. That's um, a lot. <laughs> yes. I think, I think when, when it comes to the experiences we're creating and the kind of principles we're applying and the way we're producing, I think for the most part, the internal experience or the external experience is the same as the internal experience, vice versa. That said, I think consistently the internal experiences are more modestly produced Mm -hmm. because you can, right? I mean, and and I think that's the right choice that we're making there. I, I, you know, sales meetings, the annual sales kickoff, maybe less so, you know, because you want to, you want to get that group riled up to take on what their quota for the next year and that kind of thing. 
But in general, I think, you know, all the principles structurally apply. And again, I'll use a theater metaphor back, you know, like in your college days when there's the the main stage and then the black box theater, you're making the, you know, you all, all the disciplines are the same and, and, and you're trying to achieve the same kind of connection, but the production value is different. And, And I think that's the right way to think about it internally to externally. I think in terms of your question about how often or you know what's the delta i think that's what you're asking between the brand perception by customers and partners and what the what the employee base believes yep. look all i think especially in the technology industry there is always a delta between you know what you're marketing and kind of pitching today and what the and the product truth there just mm-hmm. is but I would say, having been around Microsoft for now 27 years, the better part of 27 years, I think the delta is more narrow than it has ever been. That's cool. And because that's true, I think there's this real momentum and energy in the employee base that, frankly, I haven't seen since I first came to Microsoft in 95 when the Internet was taking off. Yeah. And you hear Satya talk about that a lot, too, that the energy and excitement is really reminiscent of that time. And I agree. It really oh, is, cool. except that it feels like much more the magnitude of it feels even bigger, mm-hmm. if that's possible. Amazing. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Are there? So this is kind of a, a left field question, mm-hmm. um, but Microsoft all, obviously has some brands that are externally very exciting, like, you know, gaming and entertainment and things like that. Um, and then a lot of products that maybe aren't as exciting, but maybe get their community base more excited. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, are there any examples of that that you can think of, or is that just hogwash? <laughs> no, I mean, no, not at all. I think like in, in some ways, I think we wear that badge proudly, you know, like we're, we're kind of the, the nerdy, you know, kind of, stuff you know we're the we're the stuff that make life work kind of thing and on look in a very real way if you're going to have an ambition or a mission like we have that's as ambitious as it is you know to kind of help every individual and organization on the planet to achieve more every individual and organization like you have to be infrastructural you know or instrumental in everyone's and every organization's lives so there's a certain amount of you know doing the work that people maybe you know would rather not do that, you know, we thrive on, you know, I love when Satya says this one, it's like, Hey, if you're coming to Microsoft to be cool, like that's the wrong thing. We make other, you know, we make other people cool, right. That's like, that's our job. And so that's very real. And then your point is, is then, and then there's some things that we have that really stick out and kind of make people super excited, you know, and it's certainly Xbox and, and, and our gaming business, but I think it's also, you know, for developers, it's GitHub, you know, like there's some excitement there and real energy. And so I think that balance is, I I think we walk that line really well, you know, and, and then the last piece I'd add is, you know, the kind of explosion of AI and generative AI and large language models and our kind of, you know, our, our partnership with open AI and all of that and our ability to quickly incorporate you know, kind of AI into our products with Copilot you know, has made us look a little bit 
hip and we have never looked that way. Like not never, but it's been a long time since we've had this kind of hipness factor. And and that's been, I mean, it's fun, quite frankly. You know, these shows that we're doing now out in the, out in the, the world uh, in person, Envision, Microsoft Envision, the, you know, the registration velocity is crazy. And, you know, we've never seen it before like this. And And I think that has a lot to do with you know, on the one hand, being a fairly ubiquitous brand, on another right. hand, being perceived as being involved with maybe, you know, one of the most the hottest trends in technology, at least in my in my working career. And, you know, and I think the the benefit of Satya really leading a cultural change that has the perception of the brand kind of altered in a way that makes us look not look, but I think people really think of us as kind of doing more right than wrong, you know, even mm-hmm. when the really kind of, you know, moving in the right direction and caring about the right things. And that confluence of things, I think, has created a lot of energy that, you know, the business that I get to be a part of gets to reap the benefit of. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing. It makes me feel like this might, be, I apologize if this is inappropriate to bring up, but it makes me feel like John Hodgman is like having a moment. <laughs> Like he's like he's like extra cool. He's like I'm actually all right, you know. He's got like a, a ponytail or something. Yeah, um, I like that too. Just about like we make other people look cool is also. It's just like I think that's such a I don't know brands that do that that care about yeah like it's less about our ego and more about like what we do for other people. It's just yeah, that's very a very cool point. Bob, our next segment. This is the first time we're ever doing this. This is just okay. going to be a rapid fire series of questions that we just want whatever's on the top of your mind. Apart from your sector or segment, uh, what's your favorite brand and why right now? I, I'm in love with the Disney brand. I have my whole life. I still am. You know, And I think even the stuff they're doing now at every level, as they participate and move forward in Florida, as they kind of expand theme parks around the world, and then the storytelling they do in the media. I, I And I'm a huge Bob Iger fan. So, Do you have a favorite uh, Disney film or Disney musical? <laughs> there's so many. It's hard know, to say. There's too many. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you this. I, I, my first job, I, I was a dancer at Disneyland and in the uh, Bicentennial Parade, in American Parade, 1975. Oh. And 19, I'm dating myself, of course, 1975 <laughs> and 76. But um, so I just have an enormous affinity. Okay, next up. Uh, what is the most useful marketing metric, in your opinion? Brand love. Love it. <laughs> I love that. A campaign that you loved recently. Yeah, that I loved recently. Oh man, that's a tough one. You know, the thing that's so wild is, is like campaigns are so, you know, I like the, uh, I'll tell you when I, uh, there was a Super Bowl commercial maybe two years ago, the little kid uh, in, in a Darth Vader costume. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to turn the lights on the Volkswagen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a great freaking yeah. ad. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> It was so memorable. It was so simple. Yes. It was just yeah, like, all three you know. of us are like, yep. <laughs> Best marketing swag that you ever received. That's a good one. Oh, you know what I'll tell you? And this is no joke. I just came back last night from our Platinum Club, our sales reward event, which oh, cool. we produce. And so I was there and we had set up a swag room for them. And I got one of those big lifeguard hats. And I, as I'm taking it, I'm going, because we had like, we we're going to be sitting out in the sun. And I'm taking this hat. And I'm going. You're the. You're the big. In my mind, I'm thinking you're the biggest idiot. Because what are you going to do with this? You're going to have to get on the plane with this big stupid <laughs> hat. And then the guy goes, "Hey, no, you get a clip with it too. It goes right through a backpack, and it's like this magnet that holds it. And you don't have to worry about packing it. Oh. And hangs on. I'm like, oh, that 
is you just enabled and it and it worked. You know, I flew we flew home last night and it was like, oh my God, that was the perfect thing. So Amazing. that's this one. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, what's the last book you read? I read this is the last book I read. Uh Bernie Toppin, Scattershot. This and it, I don't think it's out yet. It's it's uh comes out in a week, but we do this series in uh at Microsoft called Outside In, where I think it's we have a relationship with the book publisher. And so everybody that comes through makes a stop on their book tour with us and we do a 40-minute interview with them. And uh, I got asked to do the interview. So I got to read the book and then I got to spend an hour with Bernie Toppin, which was pretty cool. Wow. That's uh, pretty cool for a business that makes other people feel cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> well, see, Microsoft made me feel cool for an hour. Yeah. I was going yeah. was... to. Uh, that's great. That's some, that's some brand love right there. Is there anything from that book that stood out or stuck with you or anything like that? It, well, so I obviously you know who Bernie Toppin is, the lyricist with uh, Elton John. And, and, and this guy has lived an amazing life and, if you, I was, we, I said to him, I go, kind of reminds me, and he talks about it. He spent some time in Paris and he called that the movable feast for real. But I'm like, but you, all the places you've lived, it's, 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 it's as though you decided what the quintessential kind of image of what that living was. Like when he was living in Paris, he took an apartment that was very close to where Hemingway was, you know, you know, all of these things. And, okay. and, and it was like he tried to live the, just be in the, in the moment quintessentially and then let the experience of that moment drive. The creativity and so you know when he's living in barbados that's where island girl comes from you know and it's like all this so there's this co you know this correlation between really immersing yourself and allowing yourself to be this and and just record you know and observe and be in the moment and then letting that gestate and and come out when it needs to like uh, that was fascinating because he's like he really has lived his whole life that way and it it has served him well because it's it's produced obviously incredible yeah. work oh i love that's so yeah. interesting yeah like setting up the environment for yourself to mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's so interesting i've never thought about it that way oh yeah beautiful first rabbit yes. fire segment <laughs> back to our podcast so on your linkedin profile you talk about never wanting to lose sight of being human do you mind elaborating on how you think about humans first as it translates to both your team and your work efforts I mean, I think it's maybe more than anything, it's about this notion of trying to kind of see it, see both sides as much as you can. You know, I, like, I think when I was younger, it was just so much easier to kind of get very righteous about stuff. Right. And, and be very much like it's, it's gotta be this way, or, you know, your self-worth is so wrapped up, especially if you're a creative person, right? There's a certain amount, I think of, insecurity in about exposing creativity and 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 all of us learn how to deal with that in, in different ways in different times but you know this this idea of being able to get to a place where you feel comfortable being you know exposing creativity and then not not caring but being less hurt by you know what people say even if it's negative and then just persisting and going and and I think that's the thing right it's this notion of like you never alleviate adversity. And in fact, adversity comes, it's the only thing that's consistent, right? It, like there is yeah. always adversity. And, and so really what it comes down to is, is like greatness, excellence, whether it's individual or as a team, 
really is not about you being able to do great planning. Of course, you got to be able to do that or great budgeting. But it really is about like, what are you made of when the chips are down? Like when the, when the stuff really screws up that you didn't expect, you know, and it's like, how do you respond to that? When you get incredibly rude feedback, when you get like, you know, slammed in the head for a mistake that you didn't even know you made and now you realize you did. And then it's like, how do you respond? How do you take that on and respond to it? And what that's where the greatness is defined. And I think that, and again, we don't do it all the time, but I do think the team really understands that. And I think it's a fundamental kind of key. And that's, and that is in the end, that's the humanness, right? Because it's really, it's not about blame. It's not about, it's more, it's about recognizing that by definition, we are going to make mistakes. Absolutely 100% guaranteed. And so how do you recognize that, move through it, and then allow your greatness to show through in your response. Uh, yeah, oh. I love that. It reminds me, I was in an interview once and they asked me like, what's a mistake? What's the worst mistake you ever made? And I love that question because it's just <laughs> what you're, you know, it tells you so much about somebody. And yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm curious if there are any lessons that have, that were maybe planted during your early years as a theater artist or as like a, a creative that are, are still with you today, that still show up. I mean, look, it's kind of all wrapped up into what we've just been talking about, but maybe, you know, maybe more than anything, this, this notion of, of separating your self-worth from the work, right? Like, it, which is a hard one. I, and that's why I, I, it's still number one for me because I like, you got to work on that every day. That's like a muscle, you know, because yeah especially if you're a maker or, you know, or you're kind of creative, if you come from a creative place, the notion of it is it's like antithetical, right? Because creativity is incredibly personal and intimate by definition, again, by definition or using that. And so being able to get to a place where you kind of say, Hey, that once that stuff comes out of your mouth, once it comes out of your head, it's like, Hey, it's a ball made to be kicked, you know, no matter what way. And, and, and starting to really embrace that and recognize and trying to find ways to recognize that it's like, oh, it's e there's even more satisfaction in being able to kind of like lean into the torpedo that's coming and take it on and jujitsu it around and stay in the and stay in the game. But all of it to me has to do with how successful you are at, at maintaining self-worth and the integrity of that in the context of what will inevitably be bad ideas, right? You, you, yeah, no yeah. one has a hundred percent. You have to throw out a lot of bad output to get good, you know, quality. Yeah. We've had a couple of creatives on and inevitably we talk about that sort of intersection of art and commerce and everything to do with that. Cause a lot of creatives come up very idealistic and we end up in these places that maybe aren't the same as those like collegiate dreams or there's like early. And I think that's when it's imperative to, to follow some of those, some of that advice that you have of, you know, criticism is difficult for anyone in any context, but it is so consistent for creatives. Like you are, it's, it's rare in a professional capacity that you just get criticized relentlessly as a job. yeah <laughs> relentlessly. everything you do yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely yeah no absolutely but you know i mean but that's the thing and and you realize that is you know you think like why doesn't everybody why isn't everybody that creative you know because you know your cocktail parties dinner parties all this stuff every, you know everybody's got the story about they were the musician they were the writer they did this you know theater and this and that and the other thing so it's and i love them all you know it's it's great no no judgment but there is a reason 
why so few people end up being fortunate enough to kind of live creative lives. And, mm. and, the, and I think for, beyond anything else, the, all the other factors, luck, talent, all of that, it's this creative people that kind of make careers out of being creative, share this common thread of being learning how one way or another, whether it was like out of shrink or I, you know, I got religion yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is <laughs> to deal with, to deal with that. Right. And find yeah. a way to protect their self-worth. And if you don't, you're, you're, you're kind of doomed, you know, mm -hmm. you can't like, it's hard to survive. Yeah, that's true. It's, it takes some guts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So just kind of switching gears a little bit back to talking about the pandemic and, how that kind of affected your industry, in particular, experiential marketing. So, just kind of curious how um, how you approached navigating that challenge and kind of changing up the way things were done internally and then externally, also. Great question. I mean, <clears throat> so it was you know we uh, it was another one of these things about like kind of making mistakes or you think you've made mistakes mm. and then they end up turning around. So what happened was. We were trying to solve a problem back in 2018 and 2019 around our sales meeting because our sales force is so large, 65,000 people. And back then when we were doing the sales meeting in, Ju in July in, in Las Vegas, we could only bring 15,000 people. And so you kind of go like, are we really doing good? Because we're certainly psyching up those 15,000, but the FOMO we were generating in the other 45,000 yeah. was really, you know, kind of almost outweighed this. Plus this was very, very expensive. And so we went to our SLT, our senior leadership team, Satya and his direct reports with this idea of we should no longer do that. And instead of spending the money we were spending in Las Vegas, spend a fraction of that money and do a televised broadcast from Seattle of all of our core leaders and then do regional live in-person oh. events in all the regions around the world. Well, in 2018, we got laughed out of the room. And, you know, because we and we presented this whole plan because we're like, hey, we, you know, 100 percent of the sales force can participate and we linked broadcasts and all this kind of stuff. And so they, people were just like, are you crazy? And, and so, of course, we went to Las Vegas in 2019 in the summer and everything. But then as 2020 started mm -hmm. and then the pandemic mm -hmm. broke. I remember being in a one on one with my boss and going like, hey, you know, we still have this plan. And he goes. You should, you, you've got to pitch it to the SLT. And mm. I got an hour on that Friday. I'll never forget it. And we, I walked in and we, the team, we did this presentation to the SLT and said, Hey, this is what our recommendation is. We should break all of our contracts for the next two years because this pandemic is going to take a lot longer than anybody thinks. Oh, yeah. And we should spend the next two years seeing how much we can figure out about creating interactive broadcasts and, you know, and digital kind of presentation of our, of our stuff. And the SLT kind of agreed. And gave us air cover and said, go, that's the right thing to do. And, and I remember Satya saying, the only request I have from you is, is do it all on the Microsoft technologies so it'll really drive us forward. And that was the hardest thing that we had to do because at that time, Teams was not ready to handle any of it. And Azure Media Player was okay, but not great. And so we set out about it. And then, you know, it, you know, 60, we canceled everything. We canceled all our third party in person. Um, negotiated out of all those contracts and then set about really a two-year journey of, you know, making interactive television. And, you know, I think we, it was an amazing, it was an amazing time because it was like to be, just have such a clear assignment to have no clutter in the way, except the, the challenges of getting better. 
And then to have some early victory, because, you know, when we the time of year that we did that, we were going into Microsoft Build and it was just wildly successful. You know, we had like 160,000 people register. And up till then, we'd only ever done 6,000 people at Build. And, you know, and that just kind of blew the doors off everything because it was like, oh, my God, not only are we just surviving but we're kind of discovering a whole new yeah. audience that we never had before. And the sense of accessibility into the content and programming that we had never seen. And so just very exciting two years of, of really completely reinventing, you know, and we had to reorganize the team. Everybody basically got a new job. It was like, it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of work. And, and, and again, it, like what we were talking about earlier, a, a fantastic example of being faced with adversity and a yeah. team of people just going, I choose to be excellent, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's really inspiring. Yeah. We talked, uh, our last episode was with this woman who founded the this soda company, Poppy, which now I'm a fan of, um, and how they basically went to market right when the pandemic started and they were they had to be very nimble and luckily they had a follow-up because they it was a brand that was born out of shark tank and they had a follow-up to their brand that aired in april of 2020 and she's like we started our whole business on amazon and then this this segment airs on a show during a time when everyone is watching television <laughs> during a time where everyone wants is thinking about their health, which this is sort of a healthy soda brand. A little and treat. All sudden, too. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden they're number one in soda on all of Amazon, which is like, <laughs> I love these inspiring stories because for such a tragic and devastating time for the world, mm -hmm. it's nice to hear that it also sort of bred this innovation and this, you know, that collective effort that like the willingness to step up and do the work and and see if you can make things better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's cool. I mean, it, you say it very well. It's very well said. Against the backdrop of an incredibly tragic event, there was some bright spots. Yeah. So kind of, um, I'm just thinking a little bit about like leadership for marketing leaders, just thinking about kind of how you think that leaders can do a better job of balancing that like drive to be creative um, and be human with that, the other side of it of kind of like making strategic, logical business decisions. Yeah, just just how do you think about that with your team and, and what could leaders be doing better? I mean, there are a couple of things that are gonna sound a little bit Hallmark Cardi, but I, I think they are, they, they resonate, they continue to resonate to me and so I'd share them with you. The first one is this kind of thing that we say all the time, which is articulation is victory. Oh, cool. And and I think if you're in a big matrixed organization or if you're in a small dynamic work group, you know, it doesn't matter. It's remarkable to me that and I think if you, you think about it, you'll, you'll recognize this as well. How often are you in a meeting? How often are you in a work group where things get bogged down because people you get either into an endless debate of the if, you know, people, well, you could do it this way. Or you could do it this way. You can't get consensus. In a, or. Or I need I need direction from some other place. I can't go forward until I get this or that or the other thing. And it's like over and over again, it always strikes me how smart, you know, smart people kind of like going like they know what to do. But it's like for whatever reason, you know, they're worried that they're not going to get the right affirmation or this or that. And so, you know, 
you know, large groups of people kind of drift for weeks and sometimes months at a time because they just they can't get out they can't get that logjam undone and to me i kind of go like every ambitious person that's meeting with their manager going what's the pathway to get to director what's the pathway to get to senior director to me like write it down articulate it don't 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 verbalize it in the meeting write three paragraphs that capture what you think because the thing to me is if you can do that 95% of the time the group goes okay let's go you know and it's just like it's the most amazing thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and like, and, and if you see, and when you see people, you'll spot them, you know, in, in, in corporate dynamics and you'll say like, someone will do exactly what I'm talking about. And then the group just swims and they move mm -hmm. forward. And then all of a sudden, two months later, you see that person there, they have more responsibility or, you know, they're leading the team or mm -hmm. the virtual team has been formed. And, and so I think this notion of like, don't, don't complain, don't, you know, mm -hmm. like if you have that excess energy, take the shot, you know, mm -hmm. articulate it because Nine times out of ten, it, it's victory, and yep. and so I, I think of that one as a really powerful one. And then I think the other one we've already talked about this kind of listening and mm -hmm. responding that your greatness is that one. But I think the other one that I I would say is this is, and this again a little silly, but camp is what you make of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and and I think it doesn't matter what situation you're in, the opportunity to add value and move forward and bring. An, an attitude that enhances or enables the situation, right, is that opportunity is always there. And again, I kind of go, if you like pay attention in a given workday, it's remarkable how often people walk by that opportunity and don't take it for whatever reason, right? And none of us know what's going on in everybody else's life. And like, we all walk around with a lot of stuff going on. But if you can, if you can get yourself in, if you can develop that muscle about maintaining a positive attitude, it, it, it it's a force multiplier and it really, it, it, it changes dynamics. Yeah. I love that. I love that saying too, camp is what you make it. I don't know that I've ever heard that. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a mentor or someone that, uh, has left a, a significant impression on you as you've come up in, in your life? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I have, I've been very fortunate. I've had great, great teachers and mentors my whole life, which, um, you know, from, I, I was a, I was a collegiate athlete, my, my swimming water polo coach, you know, what? And, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the so book just I, got know. thicker. <laughs> uh, but this guy, Dr. Connor Sutton, who was my water polo coach in college, I mean, I'm still in touch with him. My my college dance teacher, I, I still see and talk to constantly. I had a fantastic business mentor who unfortunately has passed away now, but really was my second father in my early years in New York. Um, I mean, I mean, and though that's just like the tip of the iceberg. But yeah, I mean, and it's such an important component, I think, of anybody's. Um, it's it just that the ability to talk to someone and gain perspective or insight, uh, the ability to have someone you trust give you hard feedback, even when you don't want to necessarily hear it, you know, the, the ability to kind of bounce, you know, your ideas or your insecurities off of someone for their reaction is just invaluable. Yeah, this is special. Uh, we're about done. Uh, we always end our episodes by asking uh, three questions that are more about you and uh, just apart from your world and this epic brand, um, 
And the first one today is if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Uh, there's no question in my mind to be able to write music. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I come a fairly good reader, but I'm not a good, I can't write and, and I'm a player, but I, I would love to have that skill. I love that. It's so I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like more of a dance guy. Like I can feel the beat, like something in the way my mom raised me. Like my mom's always like, I take credit for why you can dance. And I'm like, <laughs> but I, I can't play music. I just, I try, I have a guitar. I want to, I feel like I have a, a brain, like a something loose in my brain. Maybe that was one of the times my mom dropped me. <laughs> <laughs> those were the self so you can blame her as you give her credit <laughs> exactly i can't play but i can dance thanks Mike. um our next one is in your remarkable life if you could go back and relive one memory what would it be uh, I, this is going to sound funny uh, so at my college um there was a conservatory of music as well, still is. I went to University of Pacific in Stockton, California, and there's a EOP conservatory. But every spring, they had a thing called band frolic. And what it was, was every housing group um, would put on a 12-minute skit, musical skit. So you can imagine, man, like college oh. kids doing this stuff. And it like crazy, you know, you know, spoofing campus life, you know, it's all that kind of thing. But it was a big deal and a big deal competition. And the first year I was there, my freshman year, our dorm won for the freshman dorms. And I imitated the president of the university and it got me called up to his office, you know, kind of like for, a, you know, hey, you want to drink kind of buddy kind of thing. And it was cool. That's such a cinematic moment. <laughs> but then, but fast forward to my senior year, and, you know, I'm a theater arts major in college and I'm a dancer. I'm a member of a fraternity by this time. And I'm writing and choreographing and starring in my fraternity's band frolic. But I'm also choreographing three other houses band frolic. So I'm like, like for a month, I'm running to rehearsals, like all over campus doing all this kind of stuff. All and the, and all three of the houses I'm choreographing are different. They, uh, women's dorms, men's dorms, and then uh, and, and sororities, right? So so none, no competing categories. All four of those shows won the trophy in their category oh. that senior year. <laughs> that night, I have almost no memory of it, but I would love to go back yeah. <laughs> and live that again. That was a pretty high moment. Four championships in one night. Mm -hmm. That was a Huge. lot of fun. <laughs> um bob this has been absolutely fantastic we have one more question and it is uh what's one place that you visited that you absolutely loved and one place that you have yet to visit that you're excited to go to i love tokyo because it's one of the few places in the world where you kind of feel completely disoriented you know it's <laughs> just so different than anything you're used to and it's and and yet so incredibly human so i love that place and i haven't been to africa I share that. I, I haven't been to Tokyo, but I have a friend. He's a touring bassist with a band. And he has said over and over again that Tokyo has the, or Japan in general, has the best food. Mm. Not only the best Japanese food, the best Italian food. Oh, yeah. Food. No, fantastic food. He's always like, their master apprentice, I don't know if it's that culture of studying and achieving greatness, but he's like, every ethnicity of food that I've had in Japan is better than I've had it in the actual country <laughs> oh so you know what you know the, so here's a little side note so the best um uh ice gelato in florence 
is a Japanese guy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Thank you so much for being a part of the Frank Collective. (laughs) This has been such an extraordinary episode. I'm just so thankful that I got the opportunity to have this time with you. Yes. Well, Nick. Beth, this was great. I, uh, time flew and I really enjoyed it. So, you know, enough about me. What do you think about me? You know, <laughs> yeah, we, th- we think you're pretty cool. Yeah, not, only do you, not only do you make others cool, you're pretty cool yourself. Appreciate it. You're listening to a Brand Folder podcast where we like to say strong brands live here. Join us as we build the Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been the Brand Collective.